Every journey begins with a question. Our journey begins with this one. How can we lead to make the world better? Here, we explore that question through journeys of great success and accomplishment, confronting challenges and overcoming obstacles with leaders from around the globe, whose experience covers a vastly diverse range of background, sector, role, and expertise. One common thread unites them all. They are all leaders striving to make the world better. They are all better world leaders. I'm Tim Collins, host of the Better World Leaders podcast and founder CEO of 4 Eye Leadership. Welcome to today's journey with another inspiring and insightful leader who shares their experiences and learnings as they progress on the path to make the world better. Welcome to season two of Better World Leaders. We believe that if we have better leaders, we will have a better world. And as we did in season one, we've brought together a fabulous array of guests from around the world to share their knowledge and experience of better world leadership to inform and inspire you to orientate your leadership to making the world better. So these are the leaders that we have for you in the upcoming season that all have the same thing in common. They are all striving to make the world better. We have a Wall Street Journal bestselling author. We have a people stuff expert. We have a digital sustainability expert. We have the CEO of a positive impact fund management company. We have a transformational accountant. And that's just the first half of the season. We'll then review as we did before and then move on to a nurse with a better world leadership side hustle, a composting inventor, an adaptable leadership expert, an award-winning author on culture, and a natural intelligence researcher who has become an advisor to the European Commission on Sustainability. Welcome to season two of Better World Leaders. So welcome to episode 11 of Better World Leaders, which is the first episode of season two. And today we're joined by a leadership expert who I have always been impressed with and inspired by and was fortunate enough to guest on her podcast in the latter part of last year, Zoe Routh. Zoe is a Canadian who's been resident in Australia since the late 90s, and Zoe is simply fabulous. Uh, I'm completely aligned with her way of thinking about leaders and their role in the world. And it'll come as no surprise to you by now that that is really that leader's primary role is to make the world better. In this discussion, Zoe shares her unique view on the use of archetypes as modalities of leadership that we can move through and sort of play with in order to inform our role as leaders and define how we show up in the world critically to make the world better. She also shares with us some touching personal revelations that she's actually never shared before. And I was greatly humbled that she chose this as the forum to do that. So with no further ado, welcome to the conversation with Zoe Routh. everybody to the Better World Leaders podcast and today welcome the fabulous Zoe Ralph. Thank you for joining us. Tim, fabulous to be here. <laughs> um, so as, as, as a quick sort of intro, uh, Zoe and I don't know each other, I'm going to say well enough yet, um, but we know each other a bit. Um, I had the honour of guesting on Zoe's show last year, um, so it really is wonderful now to, to welcome you here, um, you know, at, at an interesting you know, time as, as, you know, we've we've kind of reached the midpoint now in 2020 and you know, it's been a very interesting year, but you know, for Zoe, it's it, it it's been a year, um, you know, with a lot of busyness, despite everything that's going on, um, with a with a new book, the latest book, uh, that we'll we'll talk about towards the end, um, but Zoe, I'll, I'll just kind of you know go go straight into the sort of the standard opening question, and over to you just to really sort of tell us and 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 tell everybody who's tuning in, you know, 
where you came from and, and what brings you to be with us today. <laughs> where I came from, out of the sludge. <laughs> <laughs> well, or actually, it's washed off quite quite nicely. It, thank it, you it, very it. much. <laughs> I actually used to believe, and uh, this is a, this is a true story. I used to believe, or maybe fantasize, that I came from the planet Pluto, and. I was so convinced that I told my sister and she was convinced of it too. So for a long time, we were waiting for the Pluto people to come and get me. Um, okay. So that was one of my first <laughs> okay. imaginings of where I might've come from. Uh, from Pluto. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, a bit of a black sheep of the family. I think I always felt. Uh, so I'm Canadian originally. I was actually born in England and then moved to Canada. I've been in Australia since 96 yep. and, uh, my leadership journey began early at, at summer camp probably is one of my earliest um, initiations into, into running leadership. And I was a summer camp counselor in the leg canoe trips. And that led me to a lifetime of immersion into the wonder of the wilderness. And somewhere around 25, I worked out. I love people and I love wilderness co combined. And that led me to Outward Bound here in Australia. So now I work with big leaders with big hearts big leaders. <laughs> that was my, my wonderful little catchphrase. It just got upended. I work with big thinkers with big hearts who want to make a big difference. Some of and, whom are big leaders. <laughs> <laughs> they live in big, they have big personalities. Yeah, they have big contexts and big complex issues. <laughs> so that's a little taster of me, uh, where I've been and traveled around the world and how I've ended up this in this place. But yeah, I love working with people and I love the leadership context. And I think this is why you and I resonated so well. Um, the whole idea of better leaders, better world is something that I totally resonate with. And so we were kind of like kindred spirits when we first met a few months ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I felt completely the same. Um, yeah, it was one of those sort of, you know, almost cosmic alignments, uh, you know, very easy, uh, you know, to sort of to fall into a dialogue, um, you know, and into a train of thinking together. So just just to sort of explore, um, you know, the, the background, um, you know, sort of with a little bit more specificity around, you know, this sort of notion of, of, of making the world better. Um, you know, were there any, you know, sort of standout you know, sort of instances or, or sort of moments of calling, you know, I like to refer to them as, you know, sort of, you know, potentially even before you sort of reached the, the sort of the, the, the foundry of leadership where, where you sort of recognized that you had a calling to, to contribute to make the world better yourself. Absolutely. So I think I was a teenager full of angst, as okay. many teenagers are. <laughs> And one of the things I learned about in high school was about Amnesty International, like the campaign to liberate people who are suffering under human rights abuses. And I remember reading about Amnesty and I'm like, these terrible things happen around the world. And I was gutted by that whole idea. And then there was galvanized by the thought that I could be part of an organization like Amnesty uh, to try and make things better. And I became one of the letter writing campaigns uh, for the school. And it's interesting, you know, how people respond to that. I remember my dad saying, um, and this has stuck with me. He goes, well, you know, if you're not a left wing bleeding heart uh, as a younger person, then you've got no heart. And if you're not a conservative right wing pragmat pragmatist when you're older, then you have no brain. Yeah. I thought, oh my God, dad. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was the start of my angst with my dad. Um, but I think that was the starting part, discovering the capacity of the heart and care for people around the world and what they were struggling with and suffering with. And that, that made me look outward a lot into the world and figuring out what we could do as people, what our responsibilities as people were to each other and to call out injustices like that. So that's, that's a primary one sure. that sort of kickstarted. Yeah. Yeah. And there was, there was something that you mentioned, um, yeah, in, in one of our earlier conversations, I think about this particular instance, you know, at summer camp as well, that there was an occasion that really, I think maybe sort of shifted, you know, sort of your, your perspective of, of uh, you know, essentially circumstance and, and sort of where people are coming from as, as they come into your world. Yeah. Um, so I worked at summer camp in, in Ontario, Northwest Ontario. It was on the border of, of uh, Ontario in the U.S. and this beautiful lake summer camp. And um, my background, I was uh, privileged. I went to a private school 
I was one of the less wealthy people at the private school, but still went to a private school. And then I ended up as summer camp counselor at the age of 17, looking after kids from all sorts of different backgrounds. And one of my very first groups of kids, they were maybe 11 or 12, so pretty young. And they were in residence for two weeks away from their families. And I was, for the first time, had to deal with these crazy behaviors. And one of the kids was particularly difficult. Like she was emotional, irrational. She'd take off from the group. She would be ostracizing the other kids. Like it was just behavior I didn't understand. I had never seen before and tried to embrace with her. Then she'd have nightmares at night. Like there was always something going on with her. And I thought, thank goodness, last day of school, uh, last day of school, last day of summer camp. And we rode all the way into, uh, back into Winnipeg where kids were getting picked up by their parents and she'd been bragging all the way about, you know, how rich her family was and stuff. And I'm like, mm, interesting. Didn't understand or hear nothing that she was doing or had in her experience at summer camp reflected that. Like she had poor clothes. She had hardly any resources. So I figured that's probably not true. And then all the other kids were being met by their parents. And there she was with her garbage bag full of her clothes and there was no one to meet her. In fact, she had been sent a taxi uh, by foster carers, maybe, to collect her. And so she was met by a taxi and she bundled herself and her belongings into this taxi and was whisked away. And I remember looking around at all the other kids whose parents had come to collect them, eager to find out about their stories, and there was no one to collect her. And I remember watching this kid and the understanding at that point about who she was, what was driving her behavior and probably the pain and challenges that she was living through broke my heart. And um, I think for me, that was a pivotal moment of compassion. God, I still get, I actually haven't talked about that story ever. I mean, I can can (laughs) see it as well uh, as we're zooming, but I can, I can. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't talked publicly about that story. It's something that stayed with me as a picture in my brain about different people's experiences and how some people have a privileged experience and others don't. And I think that along with the amnesty experience really highlighted um, there's a lot of people who don't have what others have and how, what can we do to help them live a better life? I don't know where she is now, 30, 40 years later, what kind of life she has led since. And I've had a lot of experiences with different outdoorsy groups. When I worked at Outward Bound, similar, you have kids who are rough and problematic. And I always wonder like, what happens to them next? Are they able to take their experience and turn it around and create something new and different? Are they going to repeat patterns? So I became extremely interested in how we look after ourselves as leaders and as families, as and as communities, and how as individuals, we can take control of our experience. And underneath that, I think is, you need to have the inner resources and understanding of how you work as a human before you can do that kind of work. And not everybody gets to that point where they're able to do that. So I always have this wish for the people that I've come across that they can access that at some point. Um, and, the, and the great sense of compassion and care for others sort of, bloomed in that moment uh, with that one little girl who went home to a family that didn't care or couldn't care for her. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, thank you. I mean, first of all, thank you, you know, for talking about that here. You know, thank you for sharing. I think, I think most people who look at the way or look at the world, the way that you and I do, um, I think would, would have a moment like that, at least one, or perhaps a cascade of them before it kind of gets to the slap in the chops moment. Um, yeah, I know I, I've had my fair share. Um, and I mean, it's interesting. I, I, you know, I was having a conversation earlier in the year, um, with a, the chairman of a charity who, you know, was at pains in our conversation to, to sort of say how fortunate and privileged he feels he was in his life and his career. Um, and when we were talking, you know, he was in isolation in his, you know, sort of apartment in Singapore, but was really, uh, you know, sort of emphasizing without diminishing the impact of, you know, the, the global pandemic crisis on everybody. And at, at that point in time, it was, it was really only just kind of about to, to get bad in Singapore. They were just starting to sort of sense that they hadn't quite got control of it as well as they thought they had. Um, but he was essentially saying, you know, you've got to appreciate that, you know, being in lockdown you know, in a, in a, in a, in a very, you know, sort of comfortable, you know, sort of westernized 
city uh, feels like a great inconvenience and a real struggle, but um, essentially, you know, there's a, a lot of people in the world who would look at this like a holiday from the life that, that they lead every day. Um, and I think that, you know, that's a, a really, really telling and poignant, you know, reflection at this point in time, more so than ever, I think, you know, as many questions are now being asked about, you know, what is the world going to be like and how are we going to think and what are we going to do? And for the likes of you and I, you know, who work with leaders, how is leadership now different, uh, you know, sort of in the, in the, you know, the sort of the, well, we're still in 2020, but the post-2020 world, you know, as opposed to the, the pre-2020 world. So do, do you think that there's, that there's a chance that, you know, sort of having had a really, you know, kind of hopefully once in a generation event like the COVID-19 pandemic, that more people are going to have access to experiences and stories like that one that you've just shared? And, and if so, how will it help them leverage, you know, that experience into their leadership? I'm not sure about whether people are going to have experiences like that, that will catalyze their reflection and then their action. Um, this is what I have been thinking about in terms of how the world is going to shift. And I've been paying attention a little bit to the signs that values, new values are being expressed or followed. And I was having a great conversation with Joe Jackman, who's the author of the re the reinventionist mindset, fabulous book. And I asked him that same question and he said, and I've been thinking about what he said, the big shift is going to be from a value-based economy to a values-based economy. And the meaning behind that is value-based economy is I have a thing, you give this, I give this thing to you or the service to you and you pay me money. There's a the transactional thing. Values-based economy is about thinking very specifically about our individual uh, actions, whether it's spending money or whether it's reaching out to someone and the idea and awareness that that individual action has a collective repercussion or cumulative effect. And I think people are becoming way more aware of how their individual actions can have a big, um, big impact. And I think that's that's what's going to come to the fore for people. Not necessarily that they're going to observe other people's pain and be transformed by that. Because to be honest, social media has given us huge insights into people's pain around the world. But because it's anonymous and not personal, it's we almost get anesthetized. Is that the right word? Anesthetized, yeah. <laughs> numbed. We get numbed to it. Perfect. Um, and yet, I think now that it makes a big difference, like with our $5, we can choose to go to our local coffee shop and spend that coffee and support that business owner and the families that they support, or we can choose not to spend it. We can choose to keep paying our service providers, like our cleaners. We can still have our cleaners come in um, because we have enough resources to do that. And that is a vote to keep them and their families going. And I think that kind of awareness is going to be a significant change and, and thinking about how, how we live our lives and how we consciously invest our time, money, and energy. And I think that's going to be a pivotal change. Um, I think those who are sensitive to others will, will have more and more experiences of being sensitive to others and they'll develop compassion. I think the stories about gratitude and the stories about support of each other, that kind of narrative, I think will spark inspiration around the traps. There's a lot of conversations I'm having with leaders about community and interaction and support and them initiating it or participating in it and the difference that that's making. Mm. A lot of these things we knew about before, but didn't have to engage in it. And now that we are having to engage it and experiencing viscerally the impact of that, I think that is going to help shift, uh, shift our actions and then create different systems in the world. Um, so this is what I am looking forward to and I'm excited to participate in is some of the redesigning of our uh, businesses, of our business systems and engagement. I mean, some things are going to fall off, fall off the, fall off the truck and not get back on. And some things are going to be massively transformed. Um, the way that I think about COVID-19 experience is it's a giant cocooning 
I think the idea of hibernation is the wrong metaphor. Mm -hmm. I think the idea of just putting your head down and sleeping through it is the wrong action, you know, yeah. just living yeah. off the fat of whatever you have. And the idea of spinning a cocoon around ourselves and dissolving what we have with a little bit of seeds of what was and what could be and creating something new is definitely what I'm, I'm experimenting with and what is giving me hope and courage. I think what we'll do is we'll take the best of who we are into the future and uh, build something from there. Now, that's one vision. The other vision <laughs> is that we default into uh, us versus them, that we become even more parochial and more contained and more isolated as a result of this. Uh, that's myopic and dystopian view of the world. I actually don't think that that's going to happen because the only way we're going to get through this as a species is to collaborate. And we've got great examples right now of, um, of nations collaborating to find uh, solutions to the, to the virus and people swapping notes in different cities about what are you doing here? What are you doing there? So there's huge cross-cultural collaborations happening to help end the pandemic or get through the pandemic. And I think this is setting up what we, as you and I have long aspired to see in the world is that this cross-cultural collaboration and integration of a healthy society globally, we've got some practical examples of that. Hey, hey it can work. <laughs> and that's what we were missing before. Otherwise it just sounded like a, ut a utopian, big hearted view. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now we can see that it's not only possible, but that it's essential. Yeah. I mean, there's so much in there. Uh, you know, I, we could, yeah, talk for hours or have our own, you know, sort of series of discussions just based on that response there. So thank you. And that was a, that was an amazing compaction of so many incredibly valid points. So I think there's a few that I'm just going to kind of tease out initially. Um, and then it, I'm actually going to ask a, another question and then probably kind of circle back again. And, and there's a few things circling in my mind, um, just referencing, um, some of the the sort of academic and empirical responses to those exact points around yeah you know, values based systems um, that I'm just uh, recalling from earlier in the year. But I think so. I think the key thing and the operative thing in everything that you just said um, for me, what I took out of it was that, and why I love the cocoon analogy so much, is that you know the whole point of a cocoon is that what comes out of it is different from what went in. And it is a transformative process and it is a sort of a, a pause, but it is a, it is a pause to basically protect a phase of growth during which the being is intensely vulnerable. Uh, you know, if, if, if a caterpillar just kind of mooched about and, you know, day on day it drops a leg and sort of like starts to build a stubby wing, uh, it ain't going to get too far. Um, but if, if you can, again, you know, to use your term, you know, kind of take you know, sort of the seeds and the sustenance that, that you sort of could gather from the world around you as you are and kind of, you know, snuggle down into that in your, you know, sort of uh, fluffy cocoon or Manhattan apartment or Canberra and Homestead or wherever you may be, what then emerges whenever the time is right, um, yeah, is something that has been through a transformative process and, and has is now got a different journey ahead of it. Uh, and I think if, if the world can cocoon now and then transform and come out as something, you know, more like a butterfly, you know, than a you know, really kind of angry moth to anthropomorphize insects for a moment um, and, 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 and be, you know, sort of pollinating and creating as well as beautiful, you know, rather than just consuming and, you know, sort of, sort of monotone as we just go on and on and on relentlessly. Um, I think you and I both, you know, sort of are hoping for the same outcome. Um, so thank you for bearing with me for, for that. So the question I'm going to ask you just to, to kind of, you know, uh, take us, you know, sort of, um, into a bit of a mutual comparison, you know, we're both migrants to Australia, you know, you've been here 10 years longer than me, you know, I arrived in 2006. But I'm curious uh, just about your sort of personal experience you know, during the sort of the most intense phase, uh, you know, sort of, of, of COVID. Did you find that you had more or less connection to people, you know, sort of maybe friends and, and family, you know, sort of overseas and, and you know, colleagues and peers and, and, and business, you know, relations further away? Did that diminish or did that increase during the isolation period? all the relationships increase connection. Yeah. 
100%. which is which is amazing really so for example um i've got a call from one of my running club friends because we can't meet as a big collective and say hey you want to go out for a run together i'm like okay yeah, <laughs> yeah sure yeah. Uh, and that sense of individual connection was really important um hopped online the other day with my family which is far flung so i've got a sister and her family in new jersey parents in Montreal, a brother in uh, Northern Alberta, and me in Australia. And we're all on the same Facebook call uh, video. And that was wonderful. You know, it was, we haven't been together like that in, well, all of us together in the same virtual room or room for five or six years. Um, so those are examples. And then even colleagues in my professional community, we're now meeting up once a week and finding huge value in that. Not, it doesn't always have to be productive in terms of let's talk about business. In fact, we don't talk about business. It's like, hey, how are you doing? <laughs> you know, oh, where are you today? You know, like show us the show us your lounge room office or wherever it is, or just shooting the breeze. And that that sense of connection absolutely, absolutely strengthened across all of my communities. In fact, finding new communities that I value even more too. Yeah. So yeah. that's, that's been really cool. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd just reciprocate uh, yeah, and, and say I, my experience has been the same. You know, I've had <clears throat> friends from all over the world and from different junctions in my life, uh, you know, sort of instigate contact or respond to a simple, hey, how are you going, you know, with a much more evocative and, you know, sort of meaningful response. Um you know, my oldest friend, you know, who I met in 1985, who's now on the front lines as a nurse in the NHS in the UK, you know, we speak most of the time annually, right? Um, you know, we've been speaking far more often and with a lot more, I think, almost sincerity. I mean, not to say that, you know, you can't have a how, you know, what's the weather like conversation insincerely, but it's just, you know, it's not, it's not as meaningful. Um, and then I've, you know, I've had business connections who kind of drifted away because they've moved, you know, to New York from Sydney, pick up the phone and say, because you're experiencing the same thing as me, I'd actually really be interested in your advice. So I think in a way, because this thing has been so broad spread and because as much as the experience obviously varies individually, but it is more consistent than a lot of other kind of catastrophic events previously. Um, I think the shared you know, sort of collective experience is, is a lot more aligned. Um, and again, to your beautiful analogy from summer camp, you know, that story told through the most powerful Instagram video doesn't poke people in the eye the same way as it does when you're standing on that street corner, looking at that girl, get into that cab with her garbage bag full of belongings, because it can't, it's impossible. You, you our sensory perception can't engage with it the same way. But far more people are having a real experience with this thing themselves, you know, and, and they are sharing a, what is it like for you? Oh, that's the same for me. And oh, was it like that for you? I had something very, very comparable to that. So this, this is kind of the thing that gives me hope that as an event, this will be a catalyst for a positive values based transformation in a way that, you know, the dot-com bust wasn't and the GFC wasn't or the, you know, the Asia Pacific tsunami wasn't because it didn't impact at a global level in the same way and with the same meaning and to an extent with the same emotional impact that this has. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just final thing I'll share, like you, you know, I have a large extended family, you know, we've had calls connecting family members who have not had a shared experience virtual or otherwise for five or six years you know the, the couple living in Copenhagen my brother lives in Edinburgh you know sort of friends in London Sydney Melbourne America all on a zoom call and no it is not the same and yes the bandwidth is a bit clunky and you know, people hang and kind of get caught just as they're about to put some food in their mouth you know, it looks like a Charlie Chaplin movie um, but it's it is a real interaction and is a shared experience of a common calamity um, that certainly has brought us as a family unit together. And I know that that's the same in business and, and in organizations around the world. Um, so yeah, I think that, that gives us some hope. Um, 
And a couple of things I was going to reflect on. I remember reading something by Yuval Noah Harari, um, you know, sort of when things were really kind of getting bad in the UK, you know, and he's based in Oxford. Um, and he was talking very much about a societal cultural shift um, and that, that, you know, referencing a lot of his research, that really is kind of what was needed in order for us to sort of trans transgress and, and move beyond you know, sort of some of the, what he sees as inhibiting, you know, sort of societal norms. Um, and there was, um, there was something, and if she ever hears this, I, I apologise in advance, there's a, there's a Dutch thought leader called uh, Lee um, Erdekrut, I think. Um, I used to have a Dutch girlfriend, so my Dutch is horrible, but not as bad as some people's. Um, and yeah, she was talking about a, a shift towards a values-based system after the quarantine of consumption. That was the term that, that, that really sort of stood out, you know, to me that yeah, I think that's the kind of the short, sharp shock. We can't just go and shop right now. You know, we can't just go and, and, and hang out and sort of distract ourselves with the beautiful meal or the movie or the whatever. Like we kind of have to just be together now. Um, and maybe that's what it takes to kind of ground people. Uh, and I know I'm going to bring it back to you. It's one of your lines that I, I think if I get it right, centered leaders are essentially better leaders. I've mean, I, I you to kind of, you know, articulate that in a far more better way. But maybe this is a grounding moment as much as it's a catastrophic one. Absolutely. So that's the tagline from my first book, Composure. Center leaders make the biggest impact. Oh, I've seen it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And... The grounding piece, piece is is really important. And I think being centered through this is is such a gift. Because the whole idea of of being centered to be a wise and compassionate leader is that you have the best of your intellect, which is the wisdom piece, and the best of the heart, which is the compassion piece. And in the middle, you are peaceful. And uh, this is not my definition, but Cindy Wigglesworth, who defines defines the capacity of spiritual intelligence as that is to be both wise and compassionate, uh, expressing inner and outer peace regardless of the circumstances. And I think, yeah, that's kind of what we need right now is that the circumstances are pretty nuts. Yeah. <laughs> and to reach for inner peace um, and to show up peaceful on the outside and be able to act and respond with wisdom and compassion is exactly what the world needs uh, for better leadership. Um, and that's a process. It's a practice to get to that point. I don't think you just wake up one day and like, I'm centered. <laughs> it's a, it's oh, a, we need to work on it. <laughs> finally, I finally got there. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I know there was a question that I asked you offline, you know, around sort of the significance of, of the role of leaders in making the world better, you know, and, and, you know, the response that you gave was, you know, was, was very much along those lines. Um, that I'll just read it if I may, you know, uh, your response was leaders making the world better. We're all in this together. And if we each did something to improve the lives of each other, the world would be uplifted. Leaders shine a light and uplift others. No leadership, no light. Oh my God, that makes me want to weep. <laughs> that was obviously channeled. <laughs> Would you care to share any more on that, Zoe, or is that have we got it? Right there. <laughs> no, I think that's yeah, that's my philosophy. It's true. Leadership is such a microcosm, operates on both micro and macro. And uh, one of the things we are also discussing is this idea of perspective. Like, how can we get leaders to become better world leaders? And the idea of perspective is is critical to that. And I think when we can do the micro perspective of if I can help someone around me, then the whole world is uplifted. It's that whole idea of interconnection that is really important. And um, perspective for, for better world leaders is being able to zoom out and see the biggest perspective possible. We see the earth within its context of the universe. And at some point that feels a so what? <laughs> what can I do about it? What is meaningful about that? And uh, it's in some of the research I was doing for my latest book, People Stuff, about astronauts and their experiences with this idea of perspective is, is quite powerful. And a lot of them, when they go into space and they look back down at the planet and they see this little blue dot hanging in this vast darkness, they have these metaphysical experiences, a transcendent kind of experience, 
where they realize how fragile and vulnerable the planet is and that there are no borders and, and boundaries there. It's all this one little entity, this common sea of life, of humanity and of living things on this tiny little thing, which is insulated by a small layer of atmosphere, so fragile. Uh, it's been described by some um, as the orbital perspective. I'm thinking of the astronaut's name now, Ron Guerin. He talked about this. He's written a book on it, The Orbital Perspective. So when you're in orbit looking at the planet, and he talks about when he landed on one of his excursions from space back onto the planet in Kyrgyzstan, I think it was, and through the lens of his landing craft, he was face down level with the earth and he saw this blade of grass and he remembers saying to himself, I am home. And Kazakhstan, he's American, it's not his nation's home, but the idea of home was the entire planet. And I think this is, this is absolutely essential for better world leaders is that we zoom out and we have the sense that this planet and all of the beings on it are our home and our community. And it really is a global centrist view of the world. And I think it's only by thinking of ourselves as responsible to and for the planet and the people and its people that we can start to make different kinds of decisions. So that's the zooming out perspective. And the zooming in perspective is, okay, and part of me feels really powerless when I think, who am I in the bigger context of a, of a globe? And to zoom in and go, me and you, what can I do for you? How can I help you? you know, and when we uplift another, all all people are uplifted. So perspective is really essential with all of that. And then the balancing of it, so zooming out, zooming in is, is perspective taking. The balancing of it is the wisdom and compassion piece. So when we can do that zoom in, zoom out, we need to act with wisdom. We need to make the best possible decision given what we know at the time. And we need to do it with compassion, which is the desire to alleviate suffering if we can, to see suffering and to alleviate, alleviate it if we can. If we balance zooming out, zooming in with wisdom and compassion, then we have an excellent recipe for better leadership in, on, in the global community, as well as the um, personal communities around us. No, I think that that's, again, thank you and um, congratulations. And I'll just, you know, sort of spend the next couple of weeks just absorbing the transcript so that I can fully internalize, um, you know, that, that superb message. But I think, I think again, again, you know, sort of not just sort of fixating on on this very prominent defining moment, but I think we were starting to see a distinct motion towards that the recognition that we need this elevated perspective. You know, like, you know we were starting to see, you know, corporate leaders, uh, you know, talking about you know the need to have a, a responsibility greater than to the shareholders' next quarterly dividend. Yeah, I mean that's just the most sort of superficial example, but I, I I felt like the world was beginning to at least make a slight sort of adjustment, if not turn. Um, and again, my great hope is that you know this calamity will be the catalyst to do exactly what you've just described. You know, for leaders collectively to to look at each other, regardless of you know origin, ethnicity, self interest, whatever, and 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 see the oneness of leadership and that the purpose of that oneness is to take this elevated perspective and then figure out at the most local level where everyone has power in of themselves, what can we do to keep progressively moving forward to make the world better? I think that's, that's sort of my, uh, my receipt and response of, 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 of your far better articulated, uh, yeah, sort of, uh, yeah, sort of, uh, message. So, um, you, you, you mentioned perspective there, um, and I know that there's there's a, a few other things that uh, you know that that you'd have to say uh, were I to ask you, you know, what are some specific, you know, sort of again motions toward or actionable steps that a leader that's listening to this could take to themselves progress towards being a better world leader? What can people do? So yeah, perspective taking is absolutely a core essential skill and being able to zoom in, zoom out. And in the zooming out phase is to hone systems thinking skills. So that's the ability to map integrated systems in an organization, in, in an economic system, political system, and be able to see the intersections and lever points of that. 
is, is essential. And the understanding of evolution, how things evolve and grow and develop and transform, those are kind of like core leadership skills, thinking skills. I guess one of the other ones from an individual perspective is decide on the role that you want to play. And uh, one of the ways that I like to think about doing this is to choose an archetype because archetypes create architecture for action. And archetypes have shown up in all civilizations around the world in the form of different narratives. So Joseph Campbell's work, A Hero of the Thousand Faces, captures a lot of that. So he traced all these different fables and stories from different cultures and mapped out a common pattern of the hero's journey. Interesting though, that one of his students uh, mapped out a different journey for the heroine. And there's actually a different journey for the heroine. Uh, So female architect of uh, the female heroine journey is is quite different. It's about the integration of, of self and empowerment and honoring of the feminine. Whereas the male hero's journey is is about overcoming the external world and and rising to power and then experiencing humility. So it's it's two very different paradigms and they still exist for us. So archetypes are roles that we recognize as generic, if you like. So we have archetypes like the mother or the father, the king or the queen, the sage, the... um, the pioneer, the pirate, those are all types of archetypes. As soon as we say pirate, say, for example, we have this whole web of imagery and patterns of behavior that we can identify with. So if we were going to embrace the pirate, say, for example, as an archetype, we know that we'd be kind of be a bit swashbuckling and a little bit daring, a bit renegade, a bit of screw you, a bit of I'm going to look after myself kind of thing and just, you know, charge ahead and rule the seas according to my own laws. <laughs> um, I'm not suggesting we choose that archetype, by the way, for this current context. <laughs> not for global transformation anyway, maybe from different parts of your life, but not for this one. Um, so I think choosing an archetype that can help, that you, you can embody and help make you make better decisions given the context that you're within is, is an essential skill. Um, in people's stuff, I've got five core archetypes that I think are useful for business leaders at this time. The central one is the elder. And we've talked a little bit about elements of the elder. So that's being able to act with wisdom and compassion with inner and outer peace. That is the archetype of the elder, somebody who's been through a lot, who's stoic and can respond to different situations with a lifetime of experiences and contextualizing, can have the bigger picture perspective as well as a micro picture. Embodying the elder, no matter what our age is, it's not an age thing. It's more about how much perspective and experience can you ground in you and be able to serve in the moment. I think the elder is a really useful archetype that we should carry with us at all times. And then there's four others that we could potentially choose depending on what we're facing at the time. And one of them is the warrior. I think the energy of courage that exists in the warrior is something that we can embody at particular times. Not the warrior that goes out to kill and subdue other nations. (laughs) That is not the worry that I'm looking for. The warrior who fights to uphold justice, the warrior that fights to uphold human rights, the warrior that fights for creating a better world, that's the warrior that we want to embody. And I think there'll be a time for that uh, coming soon where we we need to act activate that. Um, We've got the guardian archetype as well. And I think as we move through this period of time, the year of 2020, the guardian has served a a tension of two roles. One is to protect, uh, is to protect what's good about our experience. So just like the chrysalis, the chrysalis of of a caterpillar reserves within it the template of its being, as well as the future possibility. The guardian also does that. The guardian is about, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater in this transformation that we're going through. And so they hold the tension of protecting core essentials, like our values, as well as building something new for the future. So the guardian plays an important role and they may show up in your team meetings as the devil's advocate, as somebody who challenges things. And they may feel like the naysayer, but they're providing an important role. And uh, another one is the diplomat. So how do we stay centered in difficult discussions and and decision-making and advocate for the best solution for all parties? And the last one is the pioneer, which is the daring, audacious creator. Let's, Let's go into a new future and create something new together. So there's elements of each of those archetypes that I think are going to be useful for leaders to activate 
um, at different times and always with the elder as, as the centering piece. So the way that we do that is we can get a picture of one of those archetypes. We can get a amulet or a symbol of some sort um, to anchor us to that. And so that we get reminded of the qualities, the narrative of that particular archetype so that we can, it becomes us. And so we show up as an elder uh, or we show up as the diplomat or we show up as the warrior as needed. And we use the energy, the spirit of it. And it filters through our voice and our communication and our connection with others in a more seamless way. Um, so it's about performance as well as connection. So those would be some pragmatic steps I would take uh, to help move us into better world leadership. No, that's beautiful. I think, you know, it, it uh, yeah, for me, I think what, what I receive in that is essentially there's some great, you know, sort of examples of, you know, a, a, a framework that you can, you know, kind of intentionally adopt that defines how you're going to show up as a leader, you know, and I'm going to show up as the guardian because right now we need to essentially sort of be most beholden to what is most dear and most integral to us, those values, our why, our purpose, um, or, you know, today or, you know, for this period of time, it's warrior mode. Yeah, you know, I'm going to get my shield and my, you know, insert appropriate, you know, sort of Marvel or DC, you know, sort of uh, lasso of truth or, you know, sort of whatever it's going to be um, because it is time to step into the arena and, you know, armor is recommended um, as well as vulnerability before courage, of course. You know, so I, I, I'm not going to, you know, sort of accentuate the point, you know, you, you, you've depicted those, you know, those, uh, those archetypes so well. Um, but I think, again, it, it is such a, an appropriate and necessary bordering on mandatory moment to, you know, as a leader, really just pause just for a second and say, okay, which of those archetypes that Zoe has described is going to best enable me to, to contribute, to elevate my perspective and to, you know, to move forward in alignment, you know, with the, the global requirement for leadership, um, and I think also I would suggest that, and I'll, you know, you know, share your thoughts, please. People should be prepared to delegate, a, you know, one of those, you know, sort of archetypes within, you know, their team or their peer group, and and potentially they should be prepared to shift between archetypes. Not you know, sort of on an hourly basis, but you know, you, you can't just be a warrior. You know, it, 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 you need to be able to be adaptable. I would say. Oh, absolutely. Like it, these are not like you, you stay s static. It's you pick them up and play with them lightly. Um, and they serve a purpose that's contextual and, a, and a point in time or a period of time. Um, and absolutely you can get different team members to play these different archetypes, uh, for a particular context. It's almost, it's similar to Edward de Bono's work in terms of six thinking hats. If you're trying to problem solve, you're taking different yeah, perspectives yeah. around that. Um, except that you're channeling it in a more embodied way than the, than the hats. Uh, the other thing I would also want to highlight for people is that each of the archetypes has a shadow. And this the better world leaders need to be very self-aware uh, because each of these archetypes has a hook that can drag us into the negative aspect of, of that particular archetype. And we need to be mindful of where we might be slipping. Uh, so the warrior, it's for, as an example, the warrior can get hooked uh, by power. Uh, so the relationship to power can be a really crippling thing. Mm. And yeah. the desire to win can transform into desire to dominate. And this can turn us from a warrior into a bully. And there's a very fine line where we slip from one to the other and we may not perceive that it's happened. In fact, a lot of bullies perceive themselves as warriors fighting the good fight, but what they're in fact doing is embodying the bully. And you know, I guess the, each of them has, has a shadow and the flip, the switch, the general switch is going from focusing on others to focusing on self. 
And that switch of perspective is the one that can amplify or bring to the fore the shadow. And I think it's always important to be mindful of where are we sitting? Where's our primary concern? Is it about self or is it about others and collective? So if we stay focused on others and collective, we'll keep um, amplifying the positive side of the archetypes and avoiding the shadow version. Like, for example, the shadow version of the elder is the tyrant. Mm. It's quite a big shift, right? To go from, you may think you were being the wisest, compassionate person in the world, but as soon as you start to spin and think about your own elevation and your own reputation, you've lost the focus on others and you can become a tyrant thinking that you're, you become blinkered on your perspective thinking I'm right. I'm wise. I know what I'm doing. This is the way we need to do it. And that's when we, the tyrant evolves um, and we become dictators. So I think it's something also to be mindful of. We can slip. It can be slippery. (laughs) So be malleable, be adaptive, but be cautious and self-aware as you manage and migrate between the archetypes. Yeah. Advanced leadership is, is about the ability, again, from a perspective point of view, is to be looking at yourself from a, the, from an outsider's perspective. It's like, what, what's going on in my head? And to observe that, observe your thinking processes and observe your emotional processes. And that ability to distance ourselves from our internal world that with an observer point of view is the hallmark of, of advanced leadership and advanced emotional intelligence also. And it's it's only when we can do that can we start to really understand others and really be able to connect with others. And um, it becomes even more important uh, the more mature and experienced we are as leaders is the ability to self is to self-check because typically we will get a lot more opportunities for authority, which can be the tipping point uh, for the power degrading. Um, a great book on that. It's called The Power Paradox. It's a fabulous read on on this whole topic of power okay and who's that by i can't remember <laughs> <laughs> sorry no, <laughs> Just, i'm sure, the book title's I'm there. sure. good on you and uh sorry i I, uh, I could have intuited that response and I could have uh, could have just Googled it and put it in the notes. Um, although, yeah, I, I, I use this uh, frequently enough. The fa- My favourite response um, from one of my favourite leaders, uh, you know, came in an interview with the Dalai Lama when, uh, you know, the, the interviewer asked him, you know, what do you, what do people say? What do you say to people when they say, you know, why are we here? Or, you know, what is, what is my purpose? Or what's the meaning of life? And he said, oh, I always say the same thing. It's, 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 it's a very, very, you know, sort of significant, deeply resonating thing. Do you want me to tell you what it is in the interview? I goes, oh, yes, please. Oh, could you, would you, would you share that with us? He said, right. Are you ready? Are you recording? I say this. I don't know. But I'm sure you'll find out one day. It's something to that effect. Um, and, you know, it's cool to say we don't have all the answers and we don't know. And, you know, we can find out the answers to that book and Tim could do that very, very quickly. But for Power Paradox, um, thank you. And, and yeah, I'm just going to you know, sort of uh, perhaps slightly awkwardly take this segue here to um, you know, share with us, you know, another great book, um, you know, your, your book, which is, you know, sort of, uh, you know, out in the world, uh, you know, sort of very, very soon. People stuff. Is there anything in particular that you'd like to you'd like to share with us now about what's contained within, you know? That, uh, that beautiful vessel. Well, thanks very much, first of all, for the halo effect of mentioning Dalai Lama and then my book. So I'm like, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> that, was a, that was an intentional psychological nudge, I assure you. <laughs> uh, so yeah, the question is, what's my book about? Hmm. Is that the question? Okay, so fundamentally, it's about the power of perspective, how we see ourselves, others, and the world around us. And my deliberate intention for this book is to help people move into taking on an eldership type of role uh, so that we can start to understand the patterns of our own behavior, how they understand the patterns of the four devils of people stuff and how people show up in the not so great version of themselves and what, how we can respond to that. And then the the bigger picture of who is us is largely what we've been talking about on this podcast, you know, the interconnectivity of everything, the orbital perspective, how we can show up and operate as a leader within that context. So it's an advanced handbook uh, for leadership. This is not a beginner's guide, that's for sure. Uh, So it's people stuff, you, them, us, an advanced handbook for leadership. Um, And that's fundamentally what it's about. Okay. Okay. 
Fantastic. Well, I, for one, will be very much looking forward to getting through it and uh, no doubt learning more than a thing or two. Um, so thank you for, for creating that and, and bringing that into the world. Um, I'm going to just sort of ask you, you know, one of the sort of mandatory sort of uh, end of podcast questions as we move to the wrap up stage. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? You can find me at my website, zoerouth.com, Z-O-E-R-O-U-T-H com and on linkedin i spend quite a bit of time on linkedin that's an easy place to connect with me i do respond to all of the messages i get to perfect perfect and i i i for one will say uh yeah i very much enjoy well particularly our interactions on linkedin in the virtual world um but really everything you 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 put up there your own podcast if anybody hasn't you know sort of um check that out as well uh do listen to the zoe ralph leadership podcast i'll advocate that for you and uh and yeah check zoe out at the website and linkedin as well um zoe that's about all we've got time for today but again thank you uh for dispensing such an enormous amount of really sort of quality, actionable knowledge and insight, uh, as well as a, a really sort of splendid perspective on the world and what better world leaders and the world at large need right now. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So as you can tell, I really enjoyed that conversation and I hope that you did too. And at this point, I would certainly say that if you're getting a positive sense from these conversations or if this is the first one that you've listened to you know now is the time to lock in subscribe to the show and get ready for what's ahead because there's a lot of great conversations coming down the road you can also of course go back there's 10 previous episodes laid down there and you can listen to them at your own time and in your own measure and the suggestion really would be to start with episode 10 which is really a synopsis and a review of not only the dialogues that had come previously, but my interpretation of finding a way forward and going through five steps, much of them referencing specifics from the conversations previously, but taking five steps that can begin your journey to making the world better. So what did I particularly draw as the highlights and the, the, the key outstanding messages from this conversation with Zoe? Well, the first one I think was was really a, a you know a phrase of hers that slapped me between the eyes when I read it, as it was something that she'd prepared you know for the discussion, but hearing it you know sort of come come out, even though I read it in the conversation, was that point about leaders shining a light and uplifting others, and that if we have no leadership in the sense that we're describing leadership here, there will be no light. And I think we can look around the world at the moment and we can see so many examples of when the light of certainty, the light of hope, the light of positivity is being dimmed down in so many examples by really very contrasting leadership to the way that we frame leadership at Better World Leaders. And that for me just landed so powerfully as a, as, as a very strong depiction you know in Zoe's words of exactly what leaders need to do here they need to show up and shine a light as they do and very closely related to that was the point that she made around there's been a lot of conversations for years and years and decades arguably around what we should be doing collectively as a species and globally as a as a people you know to improve our own systems and processes and cultures and structures but the, though that though he put it so well in saying a lot of that stuff was really viewed as being utopian and therefore essentially unreachable. But now in this COVID era, we've not only shown that a lot of these things are reachable, they're actually possible, but not only that, they're essential and that we've really got to get involved and get on board with them very, very quickly or things are not going to get better anytime soon, if ever. I mean, beyond that, I could really reel off a list. There's a lot that we covered, but the crucial point is the one that we rested on when we were deciding on the title for the episode, which is this. And this is the question ultimately that I'm gonna leave you with today. Decide on the role that you want to play. And the question specifically is, what role do you want to play? Is it the role of the elder? Is that 
tenured position with the experience and the authority to absorb all of the information and make the decision. Is that the role that you wish to take? Or is it the role of the warrior, the one who courageously strives and fights if needs be to protect and serve those who need it most and that your leadership can impact in a positive way most immediately? Or is it the role of the pioneer, the one who seeks a new way and is prepared to leave much safety and security behind in order to adventure into unknown territories and find new ground, new ways of being and of doing things? Which of these archetypes are you going to adopt in your leadership? And that's where I'll leave it for today. As always, I will thank you for your time and attention and hope that you will join us for the next episode of Better World Leaders. As always, great thanks and appreciation to the team who contributed to bringing Better World Leaders to you. To Brendan Ward for production of all audio recordings and composition and performance of original music throughout each episode. To Cooper and the team at Radio Hub Studios for technical support and creative guidance during the episodes that are recorded face-to-face. To Knock Knock Studios for website design, hosting and advice. And to Sarasa Design for logo and site graphics. You'll find audio and video recordings of this episode, as well as links to any specific recommendations or related resources that were mentioned today in the podcast area of 4iLeadership.com backslash insights. This is the Better World Leaders podcast, brought to you by 4i Leadership. to world.